We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Blues Brothers on June 20th. It was written by Dan Aykroyd and John Landis, directed by John Landis, and released by Universal Pictures, and we're about to spoil it if you haven't seen it. So, get ready. The origin of The Blues Brothers as a musical group was an SNL sketch in January of 76, wherein... Howard Shore and his all-bee band performed a Slim Harpo song, I'm a King Bee, in bee costumes with little bouncy antennas. That's right. Cause I'm a king bee, buzzing round your hat. Well, I'm a king bee, baby, buzzing round your hat. And Belushi was singing and Akrid was on harmonica. Shortly after his start at Saturday Night Live, Aykroyd began to rent the Holland Tunnel Blues Bar, and it became a popular venue for SNL after parties among the cast and weekly co-hosts. Belushi stocked the place with amps and instruments in case anyone ever wanted to jam. Stylistically, Aykroyd credits the duo and dancing inspiration to Sam and Dave, the R&B group that performed from the 60s through the 80s with hits like Soul Man... Hold on, I'm coming. The hats and glasses, though, Aykroyd credits to Johnny Lee Hooker, who appears in this film, performing his blue standard Boom Boom. Together with pianist arranger Paul Schaefer, Aykroyd and Belushi began handpicking musicians from the SNL band to back the brothers. And this is the Paul Schaefer who is currently, or well... And who didn't kill Dorothy Stratton. Who didn't, yes, who didn't kill anyone. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. We should specify. We don't know. Blue Lou and Tom Malone were chosen from the SNL band specifically. Uh, Schaefer suggested Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn from Booker T and the MGs. And the group was rounded out with Juilliard-trained trumpeter Alan Rubin and Matt Guitar Murphy. They recorded their first album, Suitcase Full of Blues, in 78 while opening for Steve Martin on tour. Back when he was doing that King Tut stuff. King Tut. How'd you get so funky? funky tut. Did you do the funky? Born in Arizona, the album consisted of blues covers from the 50s to the 70s and went double platinum. Wow. Yeah, pretty impressive. Uh, the album liner notes filled in the backstory of the fictional Blues Brother characters with details about the orphanage and having learned blues from a janitor named Curtis. When they officially decided to make a movie, they kicked off a bidding war, which Universal narrowly beat out Paramount. John Landis, who had directed Animal House, was on board to direct. Lou Wasserman, the head of Universal Pictures at the time, predicted a $12 million budget, but the filmmakers asked for 20 despite no budget or script having been put together. Aykroyd and credited story consultant Ron Gwynn went on to write the bulk of the Blues Brothers script at the Holland Tunnel Blues Bar. It was referred to as a tome by most because the first draft Aykroyd turned in 
allegedly ran 324 pages. Yeah, that sounds like Ackroyd. (laughs) Yeah, because he'd never written a script before and didn't know what he was doing. So you said they asked for 20, but it didn't cost a bunch more? Yes. Okay. It did cost more than what they were requesting even. According to screenwriting rules, a 324-page script would run about five and a half hours. Keep in mind, though, this is basically a concert film, so the one-page equals one-minute rule goes out the window when the line, Cab Calloway plays Minnie the Moocher, reflects three minutes of screen time. According to popular lore, Aykroyd bound the final script with the cover of The Yellow Pages to poke fun at its length. It was initially titled The Return of the Blues Brothers and credited to Scriptatron GL9000. <laughs> Which, for me, brings to mind the popular unproduced screenplay Balls Out by Robotard 8000, (laughs) (laughs) which you can find online and is totally ridiculous but fun. Wait, is that the one that was, like, written by AI or something? No, it's two guys that wrote it, but (laughs) they're just dumb. Friction grew between Ackroyd and Landis as the former insisted on casting R&B legend after R&B legend in not just musical but speaking roles. The budget ballooned way out of proportion. As the developer of the group, Paul Schaefer was, of course, cast as the piano player, but obligations to Saturday Night Live and Gilda Live, a comedy documentary film centered on Gilda Radner, prevented him from appearing in the film. As a result, Belushi literally kicked him out of the band, and he was replaced with Murphy Dunn because he was so angry that he would work with Gilda over their movie. For the first month of production, things went fairly smoothly. Though when the final budget of $17.5 million was handed down by Universal, producer Robert Weiss joked, I think we've spent that already. Oh, God. <laughs> In the next month, Belushi's drinking and cocaine habits pulled the production further and further behind schedule. Everywhere they went, people on set would just walk up and hand Belushi coke, hoping to do some with him, despite the fact that, according to Aykroyd, a portion of the film's budget was specifically allotted for the purchase of cocaine. Belushi would crash in his trailer and waste hours, sometimes days, of production time. They would just flat out lose him occasionally, and one time Aykroyd journeyed to the only house he could see from set with a light on to find Belushi eating out of a stranger's refrigerator. The homeowner answered the door, are you looking for John? Because they knew who (laughs) he was. He was massively famous at the time. Uh, I mean, if John Belushi... Broke yeah, into my house. Be like, Welcome. I, I was like, oh, "Hey, John Belushi, are you are you hungry, buddy?" And I, I'm sure he didn't just wander in like a black bear. Like he, he I think he did. No, I think he. I think at the very least, he introduced himself and was like, "I want a sandwich." I, I want. I wanted him to break through the wall like the Kool Aid Man. Yeah, and just start going through the refrigerator. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sixty four uh, slices of American cheese. <laughs> Uh, Carrie Fisher, Aykroyd's girlfriend and later fiance during the production, said what? that yeah he I proposed to her during the making of the film. This. Uh, she said that the three of them would spend many nights at the blues bar and that the, all the bartenders there were basically doubled as coke dealers. Landis <laughs> apparently put Carrie Fisher in charge of keeping Belushi away from coke, <laughs> which hardly seems fair considering their size discrepancy. But also, Carrie Fisher was drug problem. Yeah, she, like she's famous for coke addiction. It doesn't make sense to be Perhaps like this you is keep where him away. It all started. At one point, Belushi's wife and some of the other crew even staged an intervention for Belushi, and eventually, production actually got smoother again. Though they were still wildly over budget and behind schedule. Just before the final musical number at the Hollywood Palladium, Belushi borrowed a skateboard from an extra, and messing around, fell and injured his knee quite badly. Universal head Wasserman sent the best orthopedic surgeon in the world, probably, to the set, and Belushi was sufficiently anesthetized to finish shooting as oh, planned. Jesus. 
The finished film initially ran two and a half hours, and Wasserman demanded 20 minutes be cut. We watched the two and a half hour version, though. Belushi and Aykroyd having left Saturday Night Live to make the movie put a dent in the expected box office, and Belushi's most recent film role, 1941, bombed pretty hard, not to mention that this film released the same day as the wide release of Empire Strikes Back, which did not help. The final budget amounted to $30 million, but including foreign receipts, the box office take amounted to $115 million, less than half of which was domestic, which John Landis claims is a first for feature films that an American movie would make more money overseas than it made here. Well, that's typical now. Is it? I guess Isn't it is, it? yeah. Yeah. Um, well, for spectacle films. For like for like things like Avengers and whatnot, but like for like a casual like drama. Com- yeah, yeah just, they, or just a general comedy even. It's weird. It might have performed better, but it was only opened in 590 screens because at the time, either Universal or the theater owners in the South specifically were convinced that people in the South would not watch a movie with this many black characters, so they just didn't run the movie there. But there were Nazis. Doesn't well, that's that make up problem. for black characters? If, if, yeah, but they're, the Nazis are portrayed as bad guys, oh, so that doesn't play well in the South okay. either. Uh, the movie was released, as I said, the same day that Empire Strikes Back which nearly starred Dan and John as monsters because Carrie Fisher promised them she could get them roles in the movie. But when she <laughs> spoke to George Lucas about it, he was like, no thanks. <laughs> but uh, Dan Aykroyd at least got into Temple of Doom. That's true, yes. And a sequel with many of the original cast members, Blues Brothers 2000, uh, came out in that year, 2000. To give you an indication of the quality of Blues Brothers 2000, in the making of the first Blues Brothers film, 103 cars are destroyed. And in the second film, 104 cars are destroyed. Which lets you know that they weren't trying to honor the first film. They were trying to outdo it. And they failed miserably. It's it's not well remembered critically or commercially. But it does have Paul Schaefer in it, which is nice that he got to be in a Blues Brothers movie. There's a moment towards the end well, where he asks if he can cut in on piano and they Belushi let him play. Belushi was, uh, was no longer around at the time to be yeah, angry and kick him could, out. He could no longer object. But yeah, why don't we get into this movie, shall we? Let's do it. We start with aerial footage of steelworks or some kind of a refinery. Looks like a volcano. <laughs> There's like no lava. Way. And a flag is raised outside Joliet Correctional Center. Signs outside the prison advise passing motorists against picking up hitchhikers, which I liked. I'm sure those are real signs outside those, those the prison. Are those are actual signs yeah, those outside yeah. prisons, yep. But it's just uh, amusing that it's like, oh, this guy needs a ride. Like, <laughs> oh, wait, that's a murderer. That's This is a bad idea. Two jailers struggle to wake Joliet Jake Blues from his cell. And he is escorted to where he will be discharged from the prison today. Frank Oz performs the standard prisoner release. Jake steps up to the counter and he taps tattooed fingers that read Jake across the knuckles. Oz gives him a look and he is dragged by two other prison employees behind a line a few feet back. I can't figure out how Frank Oz fits into any of these people. Like, why is he in this movie? I think he's friends with John Landis and probably Carrie Fisher dragged him along because she was like, hey, let's both be in both of these movies that came out. Today. Is she in any scenes with him? No. And no. they weren't in the movie together. No, but she knows him. Does she? Yes. He's Yoda. Yeah, I know he's Yoda. I'm just saying, like, Carrie they Fisher weren't in Yoda. scenes together. They don't have to be in scenes together to know each other. Oz gives him back everything he had the night of his arrest. The first time I remember seeing this kind of scene was in Clockwork Orange, when Alexander DeLarge is being released and he's getting all of his stuff back. But here, Jake is getting a broken watch, an unused prophylactic, a soiled one, his Blues Brothers costume, and some pocket money. He leans against the counter from behind the line a few feet back to sign an X, because apparently 
he can't read. I'm, I'm assuming that's the joke here. Outside, the prison doors open with the mysterious bright light behind Jake as he walks to his brother Elwood, who just pulled up in a decommissioned police cruiser. The Blues Brothers cover of Taj Mahal's She's Caught the Katie plays over the titles as the actors' names appear under their faces and they hug and move toward the car. She caught the Katie left me Shortly after pulling away, Jake asks what happened to the Cadillac, which he calls the Bluesmobile. As he complains about it not being there anymore, Jake tries and fails to light a cigarette with the cigarette lighter in the car and just tosses the lighter off the window. Which I feel like was probably not in the script. Yeah, (laughs) I wouldn't doubt it. But also, he then lights his cigarette with a regular lighter? Yeah. Why (laughs) would you use the cigarette lighter in the car if you had a lighter? Just because he wanted something to pick on. Elwood explains that he traded the caddy for a microphone, which Jake actually understands, and he replaced it with this car, which he picked up at the Mount Prospect City Police Auction because they were practically giving them away. Jake expresses his disappointment at having been picked up from the prison by his own brother in a police car. The brothers pull up to the East 95th Street drawbridge just as it's raising to allow a tugboat passage. Elwood, in an effort to win over Jake, drives the new Bluesmobile over the gap in the bridge, which would never work. (laughs) <laughs> because there's a huge visible gap on the on the upside of the bridge that they would have just fallen into or crashed directly into the side of the bridge. There's no way they could have cleared this gap. But uh, but that's what happens here. Uh, th- this movie does a lot of really great things with inserts. Yeah. So like while this drawbridge stuff is happening, we keep cutting to the interior workings of the drawbridge, the, the big gears gear and, yeah. workings. I was like, the little details like that of this movie, I really love. Yeah. As they land on the other side, Elwood goes on to explain. It's got a cop motor, a 440 cubic inch plant. It's got cop tires, cop suspension, cop shocks. It's a model made before catalytic converters, so it'll run good on regular gas. What do you, what do you say? say? Is, Is it, it the new, new Bluesmobile or what? Which reminds me of when he pulls up in the Ectomobile four years from now and he says need some suspension work and shocks and uh, brakes brake pads lining steering box transmission rear end how much only 4800 maybe new rings also mufflers jake says fix a cigarette lighter and then basically it has his approval elwood pulls up to their childhood orphanage deep into an alleyway he reminds jake that he promised to visit the penguin when they got out but he says he was lying and he has no intention of following through on that promise coming up the stairs into the orphanage they stop at a particularly gruesome crucifix she calls to them before they knock on the door and opens the door psychokinetically it also closes behind them Mm -hmm. she informs them that unless she can come up with five thousand dollars for property taxes that the orphanage will be shut down apparently this is because when the script was being written there was a bill that was like in the process of being voted on that might have caused churches to be charged taxes but because it didn't pass and churches in america have never been forced to pay property tax this plot point doesn't really make sense a lot there was a draft where the illinois nazis were attempting to buy the orphanage as their new headquarters and i feel like they should have just stuck with that yeah that would have made a little bit more sense but then you're giving a bunch of nazis money at the end in order to win no because they were trying to buy it so you're outbidding the nazis oh you're not buying it from the nazis right you're just preventing them from buying it paying whomever owns the building yeah jake says that 5k is no problem but she refuses his filthy money and he says oh well then you must be up shit creek and this kicks off a long repeating pattern of jake and elwood cursing in pain from being slapped with a ruler 
and then being slapped with a ruler for cursing in pain. <laughs> when he just calls her a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the, the last thing that he says before they get up and like move towards the door is, fuck this noise, man. <laughs> Which I didn't realize was a thing that people said in the early 80s. Like, for some reason, fuck this noise sounds very modern. It does. Fuck this noise, man. But uh, so they're scrambling for the door, but Jake can't even get out of this tiny like student's desk that he was sitting in. So Elwood is just runs down the stairs and then Jake just falls down and is still sitting in the desk, which he apparently hurt himself real bad. I believe it. She calls down to them at the bottom of the stairs and tells them not to come back until they've redeemed themselves before levitating backward through the door into her office and slamming it with her mind. Downstairs, Jake and Elwood encounter Curtis, the man who taught them the blues. He tells them that the $5,000 needs to be at the Cook County Assessor's Office in 11 days, and he advises them to hear Reverend Cleophas down at the Triple Rock Church. So that's where they go, despite the fact that Jake has no intention of going to a church. He doesn't want to hear that jive church talk. Mm -hmm. Reverend Cleophas is played by R&B legend James Brown, and he refused to lip-sync the scene, so he actually performed the full song over and over and is dripping with sweat throughout this scene but but that was kind of his thing yeah in the trademark james brown yeah uh during his performance light suddenly pours through a window and sets jake aglow and he starts repeatedly shouting he says he sees the light and he does a bunch of cartwheel flips up to the stage (laughs) (laughs) which is uh very clever trading out of John Belushi for someone. Later that night, they're driving, listening to a Sam and Dave tape. And Jake says, we're going to get the band back together. We're going to earn that $5,000. We're going to save the orphanage. And Elwood doubts that reuniting the band will be possible at all. Uh, while they're having this conversation, they blow a red light or possibly a yellow light. I didn't actually frame by frame it to see if they're breaking the law It's here. It's a yellow light. But they, they, they were within their... But they're very quickly being pulled over by officers Daniel and Mount, who are named after Tom Daniel and Sean Mount, two Universal executives who had pushed especially hard to get Landis's Animal House made, and they were rewarded with these characters. Elwood hands over his license and worries aloud to his brother that these cops probably have scamads. Scamads? State, county, municipal, offender, data, system. A computer readout in the cop car reveals that Elwood's license is suspended, he has 116 standing parking warrants and 56 moving violations. Flashing text below advises the officers to arrest driver and impound vehicle. Instead of stepping out of the car, as is requested, Elwood pulls away at top speed, and because he's driving a police car, he can actually keep pretty well ahead of these police. Very wet roads make for some fun, slippery driving, and the cars are just skidding around in this uh, suburban neighborhood. Jake is mad that they are headed right back to prison, when Elwood reminds him, We're on a mission from God. They loop around a mall parking lot for a while before Elwood points the car directly at the mall's Toys R Us, driving full speed. A customer inside, played by Gary McClarty, the film's stunt coordinator, holds up a Grover doll and asks an employee if they have Miss Piggy before the wall explodes behind him. The first shot here bothers me the most because a woman in a red shirt is clearly clipped and knocked over by the car as it plows through a row of shelves. I think that... There are probably a fair amount of people who are injured yes. in some way or another because there are just so many extras running around. And the car is not 
slowing down at all. Whoever's no. driving is intentionally driving as dangerously as possible near large crowds of people. Yeah, it does not look well coordinated in terms of who's running, which direction, and when. When, yeah. when the when the glass panes of these stores shatter, they're not breakaway glass. It's, no, it's no, definitely it's not. It's full spewing. glass. Yeah. yeah, it's glass everywhere. It's an insane action piece. But if you showed me just this scene and told me that Landis would formally be charged with involuntary manslaughter for multiple deaths on the set of a later film, I would 100% believe you, because it doesn't look like they're being careful at all here. It looks actually very poorly coordinated. The car continues into the interior of the mall, deliberately drifting into multiple storefronts. Elwood and Jake nonchalantly comment on the mall's spaciousness and wide variety of goods and services. Baby clothes. This place has got everything. The pair of police cars presumably part of the pursuit through the mall are inexplicably doing donuts in the middle of a display of plants and easels loaded with paintings they're just circling around like at first i was like oh is there something stuck on this tire and that's why he can't drive straight and it's like mm. no they're just literally doing donuts yeah. on purpose here <laughs> not trying to chase the car at all but, but this mall which i'm assuming is probably a real mall mm-hmm. yeah like is just fully stocked like they're yeah. there's they're not Nothing's fake. Yeah. Like, it's all really full of stuff. That is true. I honestly don't even know how they did this movie for $30 million Because this mall scene and the number of cars that they wreck throughout the entire film is just mind-boggling. Uh, somehow, one of the cop cars is ramped up and flipped over on its roof. The cop in the driver's seat desperately gripping his hat is director John Landis. The Dixie Square Mall had been closed for over a year. When it was rented by producers for this sequence, the various companies featured in the mall were invited to set up storefronts as free product placement in the film with advanced knowledge that the displays were at risk of being destroyed by stunt work. <laughs> Guaranteed. Not at, at risk. risk. Yeah, Guaranteed. but they just said at risk. And then even though the car is clearly just swerving to destroy them, uh, Universal was later sued by the mall for $87,000 for failure to return the mall to its original condition, something that had never been agreed upon. <laughs> That's really their bad. They lost that suit. They did. Uh, the new Bluesmobile bursts out of the J.C. Penny window and back into the parking lot and off into the night. Officer Mount promises, "I'm gonna catch that sucker. It's the last thing I ever do." We also get the first officer of many officers shouting, "They broke my watch!" Yeah, <laughs> you know, which I think is revenge for them breaking his watch. They destroyed so much in this scene. They must have just had like one take on all of this stuff because yeah. they're just destroying actual storefronts and glass and all this mm-hmm. stuff so they just get nine cameras on it you better hope you got that shot yeah well because you can see you see things and people hit the cameras yeah, yeah. like i mean or, or the protective they definitely destroyed around. at least one camera on this we also get our first of many of uh henry mancini's peter gunn theme here uh this is the theme that currently starts every episode of this podcast Mancini. And Spy Hunter, if you for, there the, you go. for our NES classic NES. Program. Everyone remembers that. Uh, Mancini previously scored Little Miss Marker for us earlier this year. Elwood parks the car in this tight garage that's labeled CTA E Train Power Transformer High Voltage Danger. It's like this little brick house in a back alley, and this is possibly what's imbuing the vehicle with its magical powers that exhibits. <laughs> As the brothers walk back to their apartment, Carrie Fisher is suddenly seen smoking in a car and she lifts a rocket launcher to train it on them and fires several explosives into the door to their building as they hit the floor. They uh, dust themselves off from under a pile of rubble and just go inside like nothing (laughs) happened. And they're like literally pulling the doors off of their building because it's completely destroyed. 
in the lobby of their building, an older gentleman asks if Elwood remembered to get his cheese whiz. Apparently he did. He's had it in his pocket this yeah. whole time. <laughs> we step into the, I'm going to say, about 50 square foot apartment. Jake asks how often the train goes by. How often does the train go by? So often you won't even notice it. <laughs> Jake sits on Elwood's bed while he toasts some white bread on a stovetop, which is apparently his thing. Yeah, and he's he's like cooking it with the handle of a Jiffy Pop. Oh, I thought it was, a, it was a coat, coat hanger. hanger that he folded. Oh, is it a coat hanger? Okay. Either way, it's a bit of wire over a burner. Yeah. Jake worries that the cops will track them down with the address from his license, but Elwood explains that the address on his license points to Wrigley Field, so... They should be in the clear. Jake passes out on Elwood's bed, and Elwood throws a blanket over him and sits in the window to watch five more trains pass. Every time they show this window, there's a train going by. Sometimes two. Uh, in the morning, Carrie Fisher pulls up again just as police are doing so. John Candy, I think, is Jake's parole officer, and he's speaking with the cops and laughing about the Wrigley Field bit, but they seem less amused by it. Just as the cops and John Candy are bursting into the actual apartment, Carrie Fisher triggers an explosion in the building, which just destroys the entire building. Yeah. It all collapses in on itself. The bottom drops out of their room, and you see Dan Aykroyd just drop through the set. Mm-hmm. And it's Dan Aykroyd. Like, yeah. It's not a stuntman. He's leaning in the corner of the room. It just falls through the floor, and the bed tips forward and dumps Belushi down. The brothers wake up under this layer of bricks that are comically foleyed because they're clearly like foam bricks. Right, but the, the, the heavy the heaviness, the weight of the bricks can be heard. Yeah, you can, it just sounds like clay scraping against each other. And uh, suddenly they're remembering their plans for the day. They never question for a second what just happened to them. <laughs> and uh, seconds later, cops also arise from the bricks. Somehow one of these full weight bricks is balanced on the brim of one of the cops' hats. I like I like to think in that in their world this stuff happens to them all the time. Yeah, this is this is just par for Perfectly the course. Normal. Elwood heads to his job at a factory of some sort with cans. Um, I'm not clear what this place is. They're like spray there. I don't know if they're spray paint or hairspray. This is where he gets the epoxy. No, it's not where he gets the epoxy. Because he he pockets he does, one he, he pockets does. one of the bottles. No, he pulls the bottle off of the assembly line and puts it in his bag. Elwood produces three different types of cans in this film. The first one is the Cheese Whiz can, which is not from this factory. This is not a Cheese Whiz factory. Some some people call this that he works at the Cheese Whiz place, and he doesn't. No. Other people call it the Glue Factory. But the cans that he steals here don't have labels on them, and the glue epoxy that he uses later has a label on it. The cans that he uses that don't have a label on them are just some toxic chemical that he uses to fill up the tires. So that's what these cans are that he took. Oh. Okay. Is it is it the same stuff that he uses to for the elevator later? Yeah, possibly. But okay. either way, whatever, I don't know what this factory does specifically, but they have this one particular chemical in unlabeled cans. But he's watching the line as he walks into the building and a coworker is standing there for a moment and he snatches a few of them off the line and just tucks them into his case. But the extra playing his coworker was clearly not instructed to do anything but watch the machine. So when the line backs up and cans are just being tossed onto the floor by the <laughs> machinery, she doesn't do anything to unblock the path. And she's just like watching it like this is how it's supposed to work, which uh, made me laugh a little bit. For this scene only, Elwood's eyes are visible as he has swapped his Ray-Bans for protective goggles. He tells his boss he's quitting to become a priest. And his boss says, okay, we'll get your severance package ready. There's no fight. There's no jokes here. The scene shouldn't be in the movie, and it's not in the shorter version, the one that's not two and a half hours long. 
The brothers head out to touch base with Bones Malone and Blue Lou. Their last known address was scribbled across an old pack of cigarettes. And uh, they pull up to a building to speak with Mrs. Tarantino, the former landlord of the aforementioned band members. They're posing intentionally or not as law enforcement when they speak to her. They sound a lot like the characters from Dragnet, which is funny because Ackroyd would later go on to play the characters from Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. He does say that they're just musicians, though, when she asks if they're law enforcement. Right, but they, they get all the way into her apartment and they're like halfway through this investigation before she's like, are you the police? No, ma'am, we're musicians. This man is the police. Is like, oh, no, no, ma'am, we're not the police. We're hoping it won't be necessary to call the police. But as they leave her house, she's rushing out to them with a business card for Murph and the Magic Tones. So they head down to the local Holiday Inn where the Magic Tones are currently playing. Murph sings in Spanish and very poorly. I don't know if it's a joke that he's singing badly or what, but it's very off-tune and and bad. Murph and the Magic Tones are five of the full ten-member band. The original script had a separate story about collecting each member. Oh, God. Jesus. Uh, the waitress in this scene is John Belushi's wife at the time. Some of the members ask if Jake has the money that he owes them, and Elwood claims that Jake was in prison for sticking up a gas station to try and pay their room service tab from a Kiwanis gig in Coal City. Upon learning that they're getting the band back together, they explain that Mr. Fabulous is now the head mater d at Shea Paul and will never again join the band, and that Matt Murphy and Blue Lou run a restaurant with Matt's wife. The brothers are not dismayed by this news and repeat, We're on a mission from God. The Bluesmobile skids to a stop at the valet outside Shea Paul, possibly a reference to banished band member Paul Shaver. As they walk in, Mr. Fabulous is on the phone, but still blurts out, Oh no, I thought it was supposed to be five years. Because he immediately (laughs) recognizes Jake is there and should not be. As predicted, he is reluctant to join the band. And so the brothers take a seat in the restaurant. They take a seat next to a family and proceed to be as obnoxious as possible. Firstly with their stench, and then by whistling for service from the waiter, played by Paul Rubens here from whom they order the finest champagne they have to offer. Our second Paul Rubens movie of the year. Yeah, and there will be another one. He says, we have a Dom Perignon 71 at $120. That'll be fine, pal. A nearby table asks for them to be removed because they smell horrible. The guy says, well, frankly, they're offensive. Smelling. I mean, they smell bad. (laughs) Which sounds like the delivery that, like, Will Ferrell would use. Yeah. I mean, that thing is good. Jake and Elwood feed each other shrimp with their arms entangled. Sometimes uh, they just toss, toss it, it right in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one moment where Dan Aykroyd clearly is just throwing it, but then they cut to an angle of Belushi yeah. catching one in his mouth to imply that he caught the same one. Well, it's almost like like you're feeding scraps to your dog. You're yeah. just kind of tossing it, and the dog just catches <laughs> it. Because yeah. Elwood isn't even looking at it. Yeah. He just, he just kind of casually to the side. Because he's like making eyes at like this like 14-year-old girl. Yeah, at the next table. But uh, <laughs> the, the lines don't match up for the, the angle that he throws it at and the angle it's caught at. The champagne shows up and Elwood's insisting on accepting it in his water glass, which uh, the waiter's like, that's not the right glass. And he's like, just just fill it up. That's fine. Uh, he turns to Jake turns to the offended family and asks how much he would be willing to sell them for. How much for the little girl? The women. How much for the women? What? Your women. I, I, I want to buy your women, the little girl. 
your daughters. Sell them to me. Sell me your children. Maitre He starts eating off their plates because he's not getting enough of a reaction as quickly as he wants. Mr. Fabulous threatens to call the police, but they're telling him that that's just bad form. He just got out of jail. Like, he wouldn't do that. So they threaten to come back here and eat every meal every day until he leaves to join their band. And he gives up because he knows they'll do that. Yeah, except that doesn't really make any sense because nobody's going to let these guys back in the door when they don't pay for this meal. Right. But unless he's going to involve the owner, it's the maitre d's job to get them out of there. So he knows they're just going to keep coming back in. And he's not going to call the police on his friend. So he's kind of screwed either way. And I think he kind of wants to join the band. So he quits and joins the band and ignores the pleading of the, the gentleman at the next table over who's like, sir, sir. But he's, he's done working here. On their way to recruit Matt Murphy and Blue Lou, the brothers encounter Henry Gibson at a Nazi rally. This is based on a real rally that was held in the mid-70s. It was originally scheduled for Skokie, Illinois, which was home at the time to an unusually large number of Holocaust survivors before protests drove the case to the Supreme Court, where it was decided in 77 that they had a right to freedom of assembly. The rally eventually took place, though, in Chicago, uh, similarly to what was portrayed here. Fed up by the traffic caused by the Nazi protest and their general shittiness as humans, the brothers pull around a line of cars to drive through the middle of the rally on a bridge, which forces the Nazis to jump over the side into the water. It is impossible now to watch a car drive through a crowd of people at a Nazi rally and not be reminded of the Charlottesville attack. It's one scene that, in retrospect, I wish there was a way to rework or remove without ruining the rest of the Nazi subplot, but it sets up a lot that's gonna happen in the rest of the movie and it's just a bummer it's just a bummer to watch because this was probably funny at some point and it's not it's not anymore uh the brothers pull up to the soul food cafe where johnny lee hooker is performing boom boom outside to a massive crowd gets these super long telephoto lens shots to accentuate how crowded the streets are and it almost makes it look like the bluesmobile is about to crash into people because you're looking so far down the street Mm -hmm. but uh, they pull up and they park and instead of going in they just sit outside and let him finish the song yeah They, they listen through the end of boom boom as the song trails off hooker announces that he wrote that song back in the 50s and another gentleman seems to take issue with the claim (laughs) (laughs) and an argument ensues um as we move inside uh, Elwood orders some toasted white bread, dry, and Jake orders four fried chickens and a Coke from Aretha Franklin. As she relays the orders to the chef, Matt Murphy, he recognizes the orders and rushes out to greet his friends. Aretha seems unamused as she overhears the plan to reassemble the Blues Brothers. She tells him that he needs to think about this decision. You better think. You better think, think, think about what's trying to do to me. Apparently, like James Brown, Aretha had a difficult time with the lip sync. This particular scene was cobbled together from hundreds of takes because she couldn't get the hang of just singing along to a track and wanted to sing it out loud. And I, I have a feeling that that's pretty typical for good musicians, that if you are really good at what you do, you can't just repeat the same performance that you had on one recording once. Yeah. Well, this wasn't... I don't think this is her original recording of it is it maybe it is i think i think they recorded it new for 
the film. But yeah. Well, either way. It's a track that you, she's singing you to. You recorded yeah. it once, and now you're asking me to repeat exactly that one recording. And, That's true. And, and good musicians are constantly evolving and, and changing how, how they perform. Especially in her type of music where there's a lot of improvising and there could be a lot of like changing it up from performance to performance if we, we were watching this movie with our six-year-old daughter Addie and <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, she pointed great. out while we were watching it she was like this lady's a really good singer they should get her in the band <laughs> <laughs> like what's her name she seems like she could go places <laughs> um, but even after this display Murphy is somehow able to shut her down and he tosses his apron aside and leaves with the brothers and uh, Aretha gives a reluctant permission to Blue Lou to follow them, and he rushes out immediately as well. Uh, after hours, we see a salon called Curl Up and Die, where Carrie Fisher is reading the instruction booklet for a flamethrower. And on her desk, we see a bunch of photographs of her and Jake together, which kind of explains a little bit more what's happening. But we're still not totally clear on this lady's story. Uh, the boys head to Ray's Music Exchange, and uh, inside the guys are looking at some instruments, Ray Charles interrupts them to remind them of store policy that an employee must be present before an instrument can be handled. Uh, a child sneaks into the store and reaches for a guitar on the wall, and Ray puts two bullet holes in the wall next to the guitar <laughs> to scare Jesus. the kid away. And you have to wonder what he's aiming at. Yeah. Now go on, get. He prices a nearby keyboard at $2,000. And when they say it doesn't have any action left, this forces Ray to kick off a musical number. And uh, they go into, I think it's called Twist It? Tail Feather. Or Tail Feather. Okay, there you go. I think it's called Tail Feather. Now I think that. I, I love how well you edit this show to make yourself look like you know I'm a everything. brilliant guy. <laughs> the rest of the band jumps into play and somehow even people outside the store are dancing to the music. Another thing Addie commented on. It's funny because they're pretending they can hear the song. <laughs> Um, I love Addie's observations. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they play the rest of the song, and uh, we cut to that night. The band is pulling up to a Howard Johnson's to use a payphone to try and lock in their first gig. This was something Addie was also confused about. Yeah. She's like, why are they going into this box? Yeah. Uh, in the booth, uh, it conveniently next to a large propane tank, Elwood asks, Who are you going to call, Jake? Which weirdly doesn't <laughs> remind me of anything. <laughs> Jake says he plans to reach out to a booking agent, Maurice Sline. Here, Eddie asked why the phone was in a tiny room, and we explained that this movie was made before people used cell phones, but she was confused even further when Jake, in espousing Sline's prowess as an agent, reminded Elwood, He got us to Morgan Park, got us to TikTok. And Eddie was like, How did TikTok exist if people didn't have cell phones? <laughs> as soon as they place the call, Carrie Fisher torches the booth and the adjacent propane tank with a flamethrower, and they are rocketed straight up into the sky. And they crash down real hard in the yeah. parking lot. I love the dummy that's in the car that ends up being Dan Aykroyd. It's just like its arm is hanging out of the side. It's just for sure dead. Well, I love that there's like, there's tons and tons of change, yeah. but he grossly underestimates how many quarters. Yeah. Hey, Jake. There's got to be at least $7 worth of change here. They Obviously, they're uninjured and ecstatic to find all the change spilled from the broken payphone. The Nazis try to track down the brothers using the license plate of the car that nearly hit them. They all convene at Wrigley Field, 
admitting defeat in this particular effort, and make plans to monitor all city, county, and state police radios to find the Blues Brothers. I want all party members in the tri-state district to monitor the city, county, and state police on their CBs. Which reminded me of when Ray Stance says, Gozer the Gozerian! Good evening. As a duly designated representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all supernatural activity and return forthwith to your place of origin or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. The brothers pull up to Bob's Country Bunker and pose as the scheduled band, the Good Old Boys. The brothers introduce themselves to the bartender as the band and ask what kind of music they have here, to which she responds, Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. The band sets up the stage behind Chicken Wire, which reminded me of Roadhouse, where Jeff Healy is performing behind Chicken Wire, and we'll learn why later. Owner Bob provides the boys with a set list, but they don't seem to know any of the songs and just consider them suggestions. They jump right into Gimme Some Lovin', and the crowd fucking hates it immediately. <laughs> the purpose of the chicken wire becomes abundantly clear as a barrage of beer bottles are hurled at the stage, exploding at the wire and continuing in shards to shower the band. This also did not look like breakaway glass to me. I think it is breakaway glass, because I don't think a real glass would break when it hits chicken wire. Think I think so? the actual point of the wire is to just stop the bottle, not to actually break it. Oh, okay. Because it would work more like a net than what they're showing here that's true but there's just shards of glass (laughs) spraying through this thing luckily everyone's wearing sunglasses so they're not getting like shards in the eye but it's pretty ridiculous uh bob notices quickly that this ain't no hank williams tune (laughs) and he shuts off the power to the stage we just had hank jr a couple movies ago in roadie uh the band takes a swing at the rawhide theme to calm the crowd and the barrage of bottles continues but now as a show of approval (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they follow Rawhide with Tammy Whitenut staple Stand By Your Man, complete with bad falsetto. <laughs> and the crowd loves it. They close the show with a Rawhide reprise. And while they're packing the stage, Bob informs them that their $200 check only covers part of their $300 beer tab. <laughs> because the first round was on the house, and they assumed all of it was. But it wasn't. Jake steps outside and warns the band to take off so they can skip the tab. When the good old boys arrive, led by Charles Napier, and uh, they pull up in an RV apparently hours late yeah, for when say, a show would have started. That's slightly confusing because the bar is empty at this point yeah they're basically closing for the night and they didn't make any sort of excuses about being late no jake poses as the as a representative of the musicians union local 200 and asks to see their permit to play uh jake tells bob that they're writing him a check in the car now and then the blues brothers skid out of the parking lot as fast as they can Uh, bob jumps in with the good old boys and a chase ensues the good old boys fire a shot through the back window of the bluesmobile They start racing faster and faster down these old country roads. Officers Daniel and Mount are stationed across the street from a billboard for See You Next Wednesday, which according to the poster seems to be some kind of King Kong ripoff. Uh, The film is a recurring gag in Landis movies, and according to the billing here stars Donald Sutherland, who famously took $50,000 for his role in Animal House over the offered 15% that would have made him millions comparatively. The title See You Next Wednesday apparently comes from the last words that Frank Poole hears from his father in 2001 A Space Odyssey. See you next Wednesday. Daniel and Mount move to chase the Bluesmobile 
and immediately crash headlong into the good old boy's RV and just completely destroy it. Some of these guys would have been dead, but somehow later in the movie, it's totally fine. Yeah. Nothing happened to this RV. The next day in a sauna, after making very little progress with Sline, Jake pulls the trigger and blackmails Sline to book them at the Palace Hotel Ballroom, which apparently seats 5,000 people in an effort to make the $5,000 they need. Right, so that I guess everyone is only paying $1. Or their share is a dollar, I guess. But uh, Jake apparently knows something that Sline's wife might like to hear. Sline agrees to do the show, and the boys move to advertise the show and fill the venue. In a wide shot, we see that all of the band are also in the sauna, (laughs) Uh, and they get up to leave with the brothers. Curtis hires a bunch of orphans. Hires is a strong word. Curtis forces a bunch of orphans to advertise the show to save their orphanage. So it's really, they're it's helping beneficial. themselves too. Yeah, child labor, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, Jake and Elwood strap an enormous speaker from the top of a tower that was next to a playground. Yeah, it's, it's like, I'm assuming it was some kind of warning system, like tornado yeah. warning or whatever. <laughs> but now it's a show warning. They strap it to the top of the car and just drive around announcing the show to pedestrians. You two girls, tell your friends. You on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> the first shot, though, that we see, they're just driving through a field, like yeah. an empty field <laughs> off in the wilderness. And I, and I like how he has the the mic just dangling in front of him so he doesn't have to hold it. Yeah. Like it's just it's suspended from the top of the car. And it's probably well, just it, taped open. It seems to be hanging from the same piece of rope that's tying the speaker to the top <laughs> of the car that's coming through the windows. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, James Brown, Aretha, and Ray Charles all hang posters for the show. Ray's is, of course, upside down. Peeing at a urinal, the good old boys see an ad for the show scribbled on the wall with the words, tonight only, but there's no date, so they assume it was written today. (laughs) (laughs) Sufficiently advertised, the brothers decide to head for the show, but realize that they've run out of gas. They push the car to a gas station, which is also out of gas. Elwood flirts with another customer who arrives... He's posing as a gas station attendant, and he pretends he's going to help her while he waits for the tanker truck to refill the station. Eventually, it shows up, and everything is handled. Yeah, he he. All she wanted was some gas, and for someone to look under the hood real quick. And he yeah. goes, "So that'll be um, ninety four dollars." Yeah, and she gives him ninety five, and he's like, "Here's your change for a dollar." And she's like, "I'll oh, keep the change. It's fine." well he could tell that she had a british accent so he knew he could take advantage of her she doesn't understand the currency exchange from pounds to to dollars yeah is is the dollar worth more it's like an american gigolo when uh richard gear overheard the woman order in another language and he's like oh someone for me to take advantage of and then Mm -hmm. he sits down and she starts talking to him in english and this is famed model twiggy yes before she leaves the gas station though he invites her to meet up with him at his hotel later if her date doesn't go as well as she's hoping the band is getting restless at the show because the brothers have not shown up yet and there's an audience all seated at the venue. Jake's parole officer gets a flyer for the show and he puts in a call to officers Daniel and Mount. Gas is just pouring out of the bluesmobile until Jake realizes how late they are to the show and they drive away, tossing a cigarette behind them uh, into the puddle of gas that they've dragged this far down the road and blow up the whole gas station private eyes style. Uh, the brothers park the car under a bridge and walk to the show under a team of officers at a roadblock. In Jake and Elwood's absence, the band opens with Cab Calloway performing Minnie the Moocher. Hey folks, here's a story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a low-down huge She was a rough 
toughest, toughest frail. But Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. Honey, 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 honey. A song we heard tweaked a little earlier this year as Squeeze It the Moocher, performed by Danny Elfman as the devil in Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone. Well, son, let me tell you I'm so pleased to meet you. The boys and I've been expected to greet you. As guest of honor in the house of the dead. Just relax, lay yourself down, say goodbye to your head. Hi, hi, hi. As soon as the song starts here, an entire bandstand materializes and the band is all tuxed up. In the background, Jake and Elwood are sneaking past countless police into the venue. But they're sneaking with the music. Right. And moving through the parking lot, Elwood sprays super adhesive epoxy on the gas pedal of the apparently fixed good old boys RV. Crawling past a few squad cars, Elwood retrieves the cans that he stole off of the line at his job. And he explains to Jake, this can is from a surplus disposal run. 15 overcharged ounces of pure uncompounded isopropanol butane monosulfate. When combined with oxygen and a little heat, will cause a rapid expansion. So at least one of the things they make at this factory is cans of isopropyl butane monosulfate. He lets this toxic gas fill the tires of all of the parked cruisers before heading into the building. The cops want to move to arrest the band, but John Candy says they aren't going anywhere and he hasn't even heard them sing yet. So they decide to block all the exits instead. So he seems like he's on their side throughout this. I think he's he's true? friendly with, I mean, he's he's a parole officer. So I think he at least knows Jake and he does seem happy about like stuff that happens later and yeah he seems, he seems friendly with he's them ge- he's generally happy throughout no matter what's happening yeah so it seems like he's rooting for I, them i i think he just has he's got no dog in this fight yeah it's yeah it's not his job to to apprehend them when they sit down he he looks at the troopers and goes do you want an orange whip orange whip and both they both reluctantly nod like yes they would <laughs> like an orange whip so he orders three orange whips the brothers sneak into the building through the girls restroom and eventually catch curtis's eye at the curtains behind the audience Curtis welcomes the Blues Brothers on stage, and Elwood gives a special thanks to all the law enforcement officers who made it to the show tonight, which reminds me of a similar comment from another SNL alum, Chevy Chase, in Fletch, when he is similarly surrounded at, at someone's retirement party or something. So why not stand up and pat him on the back? Go ahead, reach out. Go ahead, shake hands with any one of the guys you see here, these men in blue. Hug a cop. Yeah, go ahead. I said it. Yeah, that's a wonderful feeling. Which was likely inspired by this particular scene, because that was much later. The guys leave during the final number, and conveniently, they are interrupted backstage by not only a record executive carrying a $10,000 cash advance to sign them for an album, but one who used to be a bouncer here in the 70s and knows a secret way out of the building. So they take $5,000, and they ask the man to give $1,400 to raise music exchange and the rest to the band. In the tunnel, on their way out, they encounter Carrie Fisher again, this time with an automatic weapon, and we finally learn her backstory. It turns out that Jake stood her up at the altar and embarrassed her in front of her friends and family. He gives her a dozen contradictory excuses while pleading for his life, but still rejects any and all responsibility. <laughs> he removes his glasses for a moment, and she looks into his eyes and falls right back in love with him, and he kisses her hard before dropping her in the mud, and they just run off because he tricked her again. Hopping in the car, Aykroyd announces 
probably the most quoted line of the film. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. The cops all race out of the lot after the car. The good old boys join the chase, but accelerate out of control on account of their glued gas pedal and crash hard over a dock and into the lake that's right near the venue. The girl from the gas station waits fruitlessly outside of Elwood's hotel, a trope we last saw in The Children, <laughs> when a woman was invited on a date that never came to fruition. The Nazis overhear on the CBs that the pursuit is happening and they rush to join. Elwood pulls off the road to a different highway and probably 30-ish cop cars follow them over an embankment just piling slowly as yeah. they crash into each other. This this scene is really fun and ridiculous. I remember the first time I watched this movie where I didn't get how much of a joke it was until mm. like the 12th car came over that I was like, yeah. oh, okay, I see what they're doing. This is one of those jokes that just gets funnier the longer it goes. Mount, Daniel, and Candy swerve off the road, but they manage to avoid this pile of cars at the bottom of the hill. So they try to swerve back up the hill onto the freeway and they end up ramping up and flying into the back of an 18-wheeler. And then uh, John Candy takes the radio in the car and he says, Hi, right, this is car, um, what number are we? Five, five. Car 55. Uh, we're in a truck. <laughs> and he's just smiling and laughing about it. Well, and the guy who hands him the radio was the driver, yeah. who, who's now completely upside down and head down by the pedals and legs up over the seat. So when he hands him the radio, it comes up from, like, from underneath. <laughs> it's great. Um, we see a quick montage of like Mounties and Coast Guard joining the race, and then we get maybe my favorite line of the whole movie over the CD. Use of unnecessary violence in the apprehension of the Blues Brothers has been approved. <laughs> Literally hundreds of police cars chased the brothers through downtown Chicago, which was completely blocked off for six consecutive Sundays for the production. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, the chase moves along the bridge where Batman's Tumblr raced to foil the Joker's plot in the Dark Knight. Not his website Tumblr, but his vehicle <laughs> Tumblr. He wrote really angry poetry at the Joker. Elwood comes out of the tunnel so fast that he flies over a roadblock and just barely clips a police car as he goes by. And then he blasts under the L train at 118 miles per hour, which looked fake in the dailies after the first take. So they added pedestrians for take two to prove that the footage wasn't being sped up. But they're literally driving 118 miles an hour under Jesus this train. Jesus Christ. Why would you put people anywhere near that? Because you're John Landis. Uh, they swerve left to avoid a sudden cop and their entire tail crashes into it. All these all these police cars behind them just go full speed into the side of the car blocking the road. And then they just get angry and just yeah. start opening fire yeah. into the public. <laughs> They're just firing their weapons down the street. Um, the Bluesmobile passes an alley, and uh, hiding in this alley are the Illinois Nazis in a couple of Christmas cars. They got a green car and a red car, and they pull out to pursue the Bluesmobile. Uh, the Nazis start shooting at them, and the car throws a rod. So I, I love. Well, first of all, because, like, first of all, they're driving Volkswagens. Yes. Um, and then Henry Gibson leans out the window to pull out his, like, German Luger. <laughs> and he keeps firing at them. And with each consecutive shot, Jake and Elwood keep trying to duck lower, even though the bullets aren't impacting anything. Yeah. But they they're, they keep getting more and more concerned of the bullets until they're both <laughs> completely down below the dashboard. Yeah. But then one goes through the dash, and uh, the, the car throws a rod and starts coughing this weird 
gunk up. It's like spurting oil up over the windshield, which Jake has to climb out on the front of the car to wipe away. The new chase leads somehow to an overpass in Milwaukee, which was still <laughs> under construction at the time. And uh, the Blues brothers barely stop before going over the end of this unfinished freeway section. They throw the car in reverse so hard that it does a backflip over the Nazis as they drive under it to go off the cliff. But suddenly they're thousands of feet in the air, dropping from the height of a skyscraper past the Chicago skyline and fall through the city street, leaving like this eight foot hole in the ground in the shape of a car. Uh, The Bluesmobile, having looped around, I guess, jumps over it with its magical jumping powers. But uh, the second Nazi car drops right in behind them. So they're just stacked in this hole. Jake and Elwood skid to a stop outside the county cook assessor's office. Upon exiting the car, it erupts into a pile of parts, and they take a moment to grieve, and the statues outside the building are grieving with them. Mm-hmm. I just love like, this effect. Why? I think it just looks so great, how the, all the parts just pop right off. Yeah. Um, moving inside, they pile everything they can find against the double doors to buy time. Cops and firefighters are chopping away at these barricaded doors to get into the building, and arriving SWAT team hut hut huts incessantly. <laughs> Uh, tanks are dropping off army yeah. troops yeah like the the amount of extras in this scene and uh, because they also drive through a building in yeah. the plaza and i was looking and like they were leaving like all kinds of like skid marks on the on the internals like they must have had to lay fake floor something down like that because i mean like taking out windows and putting them back in to that's one thing but if you like did you can't serious... take the tire tracks off of the concrete outside yeah of this building yeah, yeah exactly so they must have had to lay down i don't know what they did because there's just my guess they just destroyed the concrete and left <laughs> but uh this is a total madhouse apparently there were over 500 extras used for this scene of them blockading the daily center mm. so many shots in this movie have ridiculous amounts of extras like yeah. when they're dancing outside the the music store yeah and in the mall it's just so many people everywhere and here they're all in uniform like that's that's twice as much work oh yeah it's, how did they only spend 30 million on this yeah movie? it's it's actually impressive for the budget uh we get a shot of dan Aykroyd in front of a no smoking sign in the elevator four years before it would happen again in the sedgwick hotel in ghostbusters the brothers destroy the elevator on their way out with the same can of gas i guess midnight madness style so that no one else can use the elevator i I love the screwdriver that he uses like one of those like jam it in yeah like where it's it's like it's like torque driven like it you just plunge it down and it completely pops the screw out yeah and then he uses it to pry the panel off so that he can spray the gas in and blow all the electrical stuff. but again it's just one of the things he has on him yep like he's he always has these things on him he's very prepared uh when they get to the assessor's office there's a sign in the window that says back in five minutes um, eventually the brothers strong arm the man running the office into processing the $5,000 payment to save the orphanage and he does it and hands them the receipt seconds before they are handcuffed at gunpoint by mm-hmm. this entire team that has finally gotten into the building uh, we cut to months later maybe where the band is performing Jailhouse Rock at Joliet walk through party in the county jail prison I was there and began to wail the band was jumping and the jump began to swing should have heard why why was the band arrested they 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 actually didn't do anything hmm that's a good point i mean evaded a hundred dollar bar tab well they definitely all got out of prison before jake and elwood did 
because were they all in prison they were all performing jailhouse rock together in the jail no i meant i thought you meant previously oh no but i'm saying based on my knowledge of the future of this story (gasps) when elwood gets out of prison all the other guys have been out of prison for a long time so elwood and jake definitely went in for the longest um after the credits we see an advertisement for universal studios hollywood with the parenthetical ask for babs which is a reference to a character from animal house who according to the film's epilogue went on to become a tour guide at universal (laughs) the same advertisement can be seen at the end of animal house obviously and apparently guests who asked for babs were provided with some unspecified incentive as late as 1989 when the park announced it would no longer reward the phrase (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know what the reward was but apparently for a while you would get something for saying hey i was told to ask for babs when you go to universal who would you ask i don't know whoever you like turn your ticket into i guess um john belushi here was joliet jake he's also in tarzoon shame of the jungle with bill murray uh from 1975 he was in animal house going south 1941 continental divide and neighbors and that was it (laughs) uh he was an original snl cast member and uh is probably best remembered for that if not this this in animal house oh yeah say like his character was bluto yes yeah uh frank oz was the corrections officer at joliet he's the voices of Fozzie bear miss piggy and yoda uh we went over a lot of his credits in our empire strikes back episode but he also directed bowfinger indian in the cupboard what about bob most recently in knives out right he's a character in that uh dan Aykroyd was elwood he wrote this with landis uh he wrote and starred as race dance in ghostbusters uh he wrote and starred in dragnet he wrote and starred in and directed in nothing but trouble so he writes for himself and he yep. does a good job kathleen freeman was sister mary stigmata she's <laughs> joe dirt's foster mother she's the old woman in the first shrek movie she's back in blues brothers 2000 she's peg's mom on married with children yeah uh she's miss olin the teacher in hocus pocus yeah she so she, many great roles she's she's a character actor she does voice acting she was the voice of fenton crackshell's mother yep. in the original ducktales run I got that on here um she was uh uh fred ward's mother in the third naked gun movie <laughs> oh nice <laughs> when nelson nielsen subdues her by putting both of her ar- arms in the windows of a car and her locking her head into the sunroof <laughs> and she's like her uh the girl says won't that look a little conspicuous it's like no it's happened to me a number of times <laughs> she's also microwave marge in gremlins too oh yeah microwave marge and uh she played rose magruda in off the wall that's the one where the kid does the graffiti she's an attorney okay this is a macgyver episode <laughs> uh cab calloway played curtis he's a musician he has lots of credits and he plays Yeller in Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen. Uh, Donald Duck Dunn is a musician, and he came back for 2000. That's going to be what I say for a lot of these people. James Brown was Reverend Cleophus James. He's a musician. He's back in 2000. He's also in Dr. Detroit, Rocky Four, And he's a hostage negotiator in an episode of Duck Man. Okay. Which I was like, now I want to look that up. Well, and Dr. Detroit was also with Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Uh, Shaka Khan was a choir soloist somewhere in here she is a famous musician oh yeah she, I, you, you see her in there yeah um I, they kept focusing on this woman and i was like is she someone of note and yeah. then that's who it must have been who it in was. the church scene yeah. yeah uh stephen williams was trooper mount 
Stephen Williams is great. He was Mr. X on X-Files, the guy who you tape a big X in your window and he comes mm-hmm. and solves your mystery. He was Creighton Duke in Jason Goes to Hell. He's a tree trimmer in Better Off Dead. And he's Charlie, it's a vacuum Mac Robinson <laughs> on MacGyver <laughs> season one, episode 14, Countdown, where he blows up trying to defuse a bomb. Uh, Carrie Fisher played Mystery Woman. She doesn't even have a name. She was obviously Leia in Empire the same day. You can listen to that for more credits. Uh, John Landis. It's Carrie Fisher. It's Carrie Fisher. You know who she is. Uh, John Landis plays Trooper LaFong. He directed this movie. Uh, He uh, directed Animal House, American Werewolf in London next year, Trading Places, Thriller, Twilight Zone, Three Amigos, Coming to America, Beverly Hills Cop 3, The Stupids. You name it. I mean, are we going to go into more about Landis? Not yet. Because... Like Spielberg is in this movie, and that's true. And you know, a, a lot of Joe Dante regulars in here too. Uh, but you know, uh, obviously, we know the Twilight Zone would be the last time Spielberg and Landis would work together. Would work together, yeah. And we'll get to that. Lane Britton was the cheese whiz. He's credited as Shotgun Britton. He was the makeup artist for this movie. He's also the makeup artist for Tora Tora Tora. He does lots of makeup. Uh, his credits date back to Gunga Din in 1939. Oh, wow. But he also did Citizen Kane two years later. So he did all of Orson Welles' old person makeup. I, I, I do have to feel bad for the Gunga Din one only because he put Sam Jaffe in brown face. Yeah. And I was like, and don't get me wrong, I think Gunga Din is great, but they do a lot of brown face in that movie. Yeah. It's not as bad as The Conqueror with uh, John Wayne as Genghis Khan. Yeah. That's a rough one. Uh, John Candy was Burton Mercer. He plays Barf in Spaceballs. He's Uncle Buck. He's Gus Polinsky in Home Alone. And he's Ox and Stripes, along with a bunch of other things. He's also a really just funny comedian that we lost too early, just like John yeah. Belushi. Uh, Judith Belushi Paisano, or Pisano. Uh, she was the Holiday Inn cocktail waitress, and she was Belushi's wife, obviously. Alan Rubin was Mr. Fabulous. He's a musician. He's back in 2000. Paul Rubens was the waiter. He's Pee Wee. He was in Midnight Madness. Uh, earlier this year and he'll be back later this year as the actual peewee character in cheech and chong's next movie uh henry gibson was the head nazi uh he's in burbs he's in magnolia he's also in gremlins too yeah he he was a regular on laughing yeah uh he's very very famous comedian uh a always look because like you mentioned joe dante regular he's in so many joe dante films uh but just you know tv movie he 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 was very busy all the way up into until his death i think in the early 2000s yeah he was in two macgyvers he was in the one where he played the silent film actor oh that's right and he was he also had a cameo where he had like a car a station wagon full of kids that he was getting fast food for in harry's will i remember that harry's will was a great episode (laughs) a lot of cameos in that episode weird one uh john lee hooker played street slim he's a musician uh aretha franklin was the sole soul food cafe owner you know her she's a musician she's back for the 2000 movie lou marini same musician back for 2000 matt murphy the same ray charles he's a musician he's famous uh he was played by jamie fox in a biopic which like the more i see him young the more i'm like yeah jamie fox is the only person who could have done that mm-hmm. um and uh he's also a famous diet pepsi spokesperson you got the right one bay a bay Devereaux white was the young guitar thief he played argyle the limo driver from die hard oh, okay yeah um and probably not a, by coincidence he also played an uber driver on workaholics i'm sure they were like can yeah. we get the limo driver from die hard to play the uber driver 
Uh, Charles Napier was Tucker McElroy. Yeah. Uh, he's Murdoch in what I would call Second Blood. <laughs> um, Rambo Two. Uh, Lieutenant Boyle in oh. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I thought we were. I thought you were. No, I I'm thought not, you were I'm moving on. I was like, no, no. we got to talk about this guy. He plays Lieutenant Boyle in Silence of the Lambs. He's also the commander in Austin Powers, mm-hmm. who is on the radio with Clint Howard as they're like talking about Bob's big boy re-entering the Earth's yeah. atmosphere. Um, but he's great. He is the head of the Duke Entertainment <laughs> on The Critic. He's, oh, okay. he's Jay Sherman's boss. Yeah. I think he also did a voice in Archer, but I don't. I didn't write down what it was. He, he does tons of voice. His, his voice is fantastic. Yeah. Um, Steve Lawrence was Maurice Sline. He came back for 2000 also, and he was a musician who performed commonly with his wife, Edie Gourmet. Uh, Twiggy was the lady from the uh, gas station who was a top model in the late 60s. Uh, Ralph Foodie was the police dispatcher. He played Johnny in Angels with Filthy Souls. Oh, my God. Yeah. No. Oh, that all makes sense. Yeah. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Um, Steven Spielberg was the Cook County Assessor's Office clerk. And obviously, he's a very famous director. He's not in a lot of movies. No, no. It's it's funny. Like uh, this, I can think of this, Austin Powers. um, Where he's playing himself. Yeah. In Goldmember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. James Avery was apparently somewhere in the crowd outside of Ray's shop. Uh, he's Uncle Phil. He's the voice of Shredder, one of the voices of Shredder. I think he was the voice first, and then he was replaced with uh, Jim Cummings. Mm. But uh, great guy. We just lost him pretty recently, too. And apparently Mr. T is also out there somewhere. Um, although this could be just people like, I wish I was in that movie. I'm going to say I was in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, Mr. T was obviously Clubber Lang. Uh, he's B.A. Barakas from the A-Team, and he's Earl Devereaux in the first Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs film. Jess, up or down? I don't know. Richard, what do you think about this? Movie? Uh, <laughs> this movie's getting a big up. A big up? A big up. Really? This is a big up. This is a Richard uh, Richard classic. This is this is really? a movie much beloved by by the Richard and I'm having a hard time not putting it in my number one spot. Wow. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's an up for me, for sure. Well, I mean, I guess you should see it, but it's really not, like, not a lot. It's sloppy. It's, it's a up. reluctant up. It's a reluctant up. Wow. I'm, I'm actually surprised uh, from both of you. It's not, it's not super funny to me. It's really not that funny. I laughed the entire time. I had tears in my eyes. And this is like, this, like the, who knows how many times I've watched this Did movie. you watch it when you were a kid? No, I, 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 my father introduced this to me pretty late in my life. Uh, and since then, I've just been obsessed with it. Because huh. I saw it for the first time, I think, either late high school or early college. And I had always heard that it was like one of the funniest movies ever made. And that John Belushi was a genius that we lost before, you know, his time. But I, he's not funny. Nothing he says in this whole movie is funny. Uh, I could probably agree that he is not as funny as he could be. I think that people misremember how funny he was. I think that dying as early as he did has done a lot for his legacy. Mm. I think that happens for a lot of people, obviously. But I don't think... Because I, I also don't happen to like Animal House oh, very much. I don't like Animal House at all. So between these two, if these are like showing you who John Belushi was as a character... 
I don't care for his work. But the music is obviously great. I love the music. I think Dan Aykroyd is doing a hell of a job. I think he's he's carrying their side of the story. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you'd cut the car accidents and the music together and skipped all the stuff about the band getting back together, I would have been totally fine with this movie. I like John Belushi on SNL. I, I enjoy his I didn't skits. see him on SNL. Well, I mean... I I didn't watch it when he was originally on, obviously, right. but I the stuff that I've gone back and seen, which is probably mostly highlight reels, I liked that stuff. But this movie just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't make me laugh. Well, I, I also feel that watching the extended cut is a Hurts. bit of a yeah. is a bit of a disservice because seventeen minutes is a lot of time to add yeah. back into a movie. It's already a very long movie, yes. a, an unnecessary long movie, even without the 17 minutes, and, as and, far as I'm concerned. And so watching a lot of those extra scenes, I was just like, this, Why isn't, is this, in here? this doesn't really add anything. Even, even some of the scenes that were literally just a line of dialogue, like when they go to see the penguin, and he, I can't remember what, what Elwood's, because I, I don't know the scenes, because I've only watched the theatrical version. Yeah. Um, but... Elwood says something and Jake just repeats it back in a snotty voice. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was one scene that was cut back in maybe th- two seconds, and the whole movie is filled with like those like two, three. I was like, why does it keep getting washed out? Um, and those were cut for a reason, and they didn't add anything. And uh, so I feel it's a it, it makes the film a little more arduous to watch. Yeah, I will agree, um, but. I, I I just adore this movie. Yeah. I enjoy all the music. I think I like the characters. I just don't think that it was a well put together movie. Yeah. I think it was definitely pretty sloppily shot and edited. I think that everybody was on a lot of coke and they had to make a movie. And so they made the movie and that it wasn't, it wasn't uh, their best work. I don't think it was anybody's best work. But uh, honestly, if you gave me this or the stupids and a desert island, I'm taking the stupids. <laughs> All right, you, I'm going to take the desert island. <laughs> yeah, because that's just like those are worth millions of dollars. Yeah. But yeah, where does this go on your list, Jess? Um, yeah. After I go and complain about it, it's actually on the top. No, it's not that. It's not that high. It's um, it looks like seventeenth place for me for the year. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, after Mountain Men and ahead of Last Married Couple in America. All right, Richard, where's this going? Well, like I said, like watching this movie as I did just recently again for the again millionth time, I was like, oh man, this might be my new number one. But no, I've I've had clear clarity of thoughts. Um, We're not trying to sway your opinion. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I, it's not. It's not that you can't. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you cannot. I, I am obstinate on this. No, um, but um, I'm going to put this in uh, fourth position uh, just just after Ninth Configuration. Because, again, Ninth Configuration was just like a marvel to my eyes that I had never seen. <laughs> um, so this puts it between Ninth Configuration and Where the Buffalo Roam. All right. Uh, for me, this is going just above Folks and just under Saturn Three. Which is still pretty high on my list. Um, it's in my top twenty. 
<laughs> Saturn 3 is in my top 10 still. <laughs> it's good. It's wonderful. Just barely now, though. With with the addition of the Blues Brothers, it's, it's, it's now number 10. Yes. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. On that note, here's a shout out for Via VHS. Thank you for the kind words in your iTunes review. We hope you continue to enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Brewbaker, which IMDb describes like so. The new warden of a small prison farm in Arkansas tries to clean it up of corruption after initially posing as an inmate. What is a prison farm? Find out next time. We leave you now with a trailer for Brewbaker. Although Wakefield is admittedly an imperfect institution, much like America herself, she is nonetheless a grand experiment. Come on, man. I am the man. I'm the new warden here. My name is Henry Brubaker. I figure most of you guys belong here. Basically, you don't have any respect for other people or yourselves. What do you think of our new warden? I'm trying to get a fix on what his first order of business here is going to be. Blow the place up. He's dangerous. What the hell's the matter with you? You mean to tell me you're charging for medical attention? Get your hands off me! start wars and you let other people fight them do not come marching in here from wherever the hell she found you and presume to lecture us about how to treat our fellow man must be over 200 of them out there abraham are you talking about the bodies that are supposed to be buried here somebody needs to stop them how many men are buried out there you wouldn't even know would you it's crazy they're digging up bodies that's murder they're talking about in there. And if they condone it, how are you going to turn around and tell these guys why they're locked up? Robert Redford. Brubaker. Brubaker.